Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome to Episode 37 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. This week's podcast is an extra long one, coming in at an hour and 15 minutes. It features a recorded live reading of the historic Appalachian Inquisition panel, as recorded at the West Virginia Writers' 2010 Summer Conference at Cedar Lakes in Ripley. This was one of the largest gatherings of prominent West Virginia literary figures assembled in quite some time. But, as I don't have the actual numbers of the last time such a panel was organized and assembled, I can't give them to you now. This panel was put together by our outgoing president, Terry McNemer, and was emceed by our incoming president, Kat Pleska. I would list the individual members of the panel, but Kat Pleska does just about a perfect job of that at the start of the recording. This not being a visual medium, discerning who is speaking when is the tricky part. However, each of the questions asked is answered in pretty much the same order by the panel, so pay attention to Kat's introductions at the beginning, and you can pretty much do the math as to who is speaking when. Now, I must apologize in advance for the occasional lapse in audio quality. It's a poor podcaster who blames his microphone, but in this case, I'm going to blame one of Cedar Lake's microphones. One of them was not only lacking a pop filter, but indeed any kind of shielding at all, exposing the diaphragm of the mic directly to the speakers, so there are quite a few pops here and there, depending on who is using it. Not to mention Pops Walker, who was actually in the room as well. In the end, it's ultimately my fault, because I saw the condition of that microphone before the panel and didn't ask Cedar Legs for a new one. I now turn things over to Terry McNemer to introduce the event. I'd like to welcome you all to our discussion panel this afternoon. It's entitled The Appalachian Inquisition. Our moderator today is Kathy Pleska. She's the new president of West Virginia Writers. She'll uh, take over next month. And, and, uh, and he's really. <laughs> I need to go away. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I introduce you to her. She'll introduce the guest. And uh, thank you all for coming. Hello, everybody. Uh, good afternoon. And uh, I do want to say that this is a very historic occasion. Uh, we pulled this panel together. We, we, we called them and said, can you come? And they all said, yes. And we're like, really? <laughs> cool. <laughs> but it is a very historic occasion. These are our premier uh, West Virginia authors. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do a brief uh, introduction for each of, each of these individuals up here, so you remember who's who. And uh, excuse me, I actually remember my reading glasses. Uh, from all of us to learn a thing or 
3 million, uh, not just about poetry, but about, about writing, um, period, and a certain type of action writing, West Virginia writing. Uh, she has completed a memoir called Rank Stranger. Rank Stranger, and it's from Ohio University Press. Not yet. Not yet. It's forthcoming, and I'm really looking forward to it. And you've been reading pieces of it on uh, West Virginia Public Radio. So do tune in uh, to that, to hear her. And welcome, Irene. Thank you for coming. Uh, to her left is Denise Sharmina. Um, she's an award-winning and celebrated West Virginia author of historical fiction, uh, whose latest book, Emily's Ghost, is out now. Uh, Emily, next week? Okay. The hardback is out. The hardback is out. The hardback is out. And the paperback is out next week. Uh, I just want to say just a little personal thing here. I wrote my master's thesis uh, about Denise's book, Storming in the Man Quiet Earth. And uh, which um, I feel truly are, are masterpieces. They're actually fabulous. If you have not read them, find them. They're still in print. You'll love them. Uh, she also ran for governor the, on the Mountain Party ticket. And she teaches at WBSU, West Virginia State University, as writer in residence. Welcome, Denise. Uh, to her left is um, Danny Boyd. Danny is a filmmaker. Uh, am I saying this right? Amateur wrestling? Professional Welcome to you. So we're going to open this uh, 
we're going to be talking about all things right now. And I'm going to open up with the first question. And you both speak. There's a mic there, and there'll be another one here in just a moment. And so the first question is, is the true Appalachian voice still here? Is it dying, or is it evolving? And in your discussion, you may be speaking about what are the elements of an Appalachian voice. But think about the Appalachian voice. Is it still here? Is it dying? Does it evolve? And what are your thoughts on that? And there's, there's, I'm not going to test you. I'm not going to get points or grade you on this. So, so thank you. And we'd like to hear your thoughts. You want to go along in order here, or let people speak up if they feel they want to? Well, yes. Whoever wants to speak. Well, since I'm sitting here, I definitely would say it's evolving. It's amazing to me all the different kinds of writing that are coming out of this region right now. There's a huge range of writing. So it's pretty hard to say that there is a Appalachian voice, I think. There are a lot of voices going on. It may be that they're all grounded in the same place, but they're all taking off in a lot of different directions. So I think we're living in an exciting time. Somebody told me there was a Chinese adage. It's actually a curse. Maybe we live in interesting times, but we are living in very interesting times in terms of our literature. And the reason I agree with the evolving thing, if you look at the history of any other ethnic literature or any other regional literature, there are certain stages that go through. It has to be defensive for a while in order just to assert that it lives there on the land and needs to be acknowledged. But I think that we're well past that age of being defensive. And when people start talking in defensive terms, it feels very stale to me, very old and not very interesting. I think that what excites me most about literature in this region right now that I think is evolving is when two things come together, when two stories come together, the story of the past and the story of right now, and the tension and the friction that get worked out between those two things are where literature really happens, in my opinion. I know in poetry, if there isn't that tension there, nothing much happens. It stays flat. The language stays flat. No matter what noble sentiments you might be expressing, they're boring because they're not powered by what's going on in actual human lives right now. And it's exciting in West Virginia and in Appalachia because we're in the middle of a lot of turmoil, economic turmoil and class turmoil. So I would definitely go for the idea of evolving literature. I'm trying to figure out in some ways still what an Appalachian voice is. Not that I don't think that one exists, but I was thinking about it as I was driving up here and got a little cheap-cheap. And I was thinking, it's like St. Augustine was asked what time was. He said, well, if 
I know what it is, but if you ask me to explain what time is, I have no idea. I can't explain it. And I feel the same way about the Appalachian voice. But I recognize that when I hear it, uh, but I couldn't tell you what it exactly consists of. Uh, and part of it is for me, I do think it, you know, it's evolving in some way, but it's also not limited in the sense that, I mean, much as I love these Appalachian mountains, it's not limited to these Appalachian mountains. Because I've encountered it other places, and it feels real similar, and it feels a lot like home to me. Um, I've written probably half of my fiction has not been said here. Uh, and my first four books, uh, two were set in West Virginia, but one was set in medieval England, and one was set in Nazi Germany, although it didn't have a little section set in West Virginia. Um, and then I wrote a book about the Brontes, and now I'm back to working on one that's set in West Virginia, but so it's seeming to be evening out. But, um, but I felt the Appalachian connection in all of us. Uh, you know, when I was writing about medieval England uh, and medieval Wales, I was writing about Appalachia. When I was writing about the mountains of Wales, I was thinking of mountains. Um, when I was writing about medieval London, I was thinking of Welsh, where when I was going out, the sewage went out the window, just like that is in medieval London. I mean, that, uh, uh, so, you know, there were connections. Uh, when I went to Howard to, to research my novel about the Brontes, I felt like I was home. Uh, the town felt like an Appalachian town. The landscape felt very Appalachian in a lot of ways. And the people seemed really just like the people in West Virginia in a lot of ways. And, and um, whether it's a connection with the landscape, whether it's a connection with the spirit world, whether it's a connection with family, whether it's the fact that it's okay to be eccentric, which I think is one of the hallmarks of, of this region. Uh, I find it a lot of places, and so um, I'm kind of interested in the way it pops up in a lot of places and how it can be used in a lot of different types of fiction and a lot of different types of poetry and a lot of different new forms of creativity that are, uh, are springing up out there. Um, and I think, you know, a kid growing up today in West Virginia has had different experiences than a kid growing up when I grew up. Uh, in terms of, you know, this kid is connected to his iPod and, and you know, his cable TV, and that's actually old-fashioned now. Uh, but, you know, he's connected to the Internet, and you know, she's connected to all these, you know, she, she's, you know, she can get on the Internet and talk face-to-face with a person in a different part of the world, you know, and, and what's this um, new website called uh, where you can talk to somebody if you don't like them, you just flip them away and go talk to the next person. It's crazy stuff that has nothing to do with the way that most of us grew up in the region. So, um, and yet there's an Appalachian spin to it that I can't quite get my name on. Uh, but it's there. I, think. I recognize it when I see it. And that's about all I want to say about it. Uh, but I also agree with the word evolution. 
I think that, you know, you said Chinese all go Africa, and the sun stops for no man. There's change. We are, we are evolving. And I think evolving for the better, from what I see. I mean, people don't look down on us like they did 20 years ago. You look how the world rallied around us during the last uh, coal mining disaster. I tell my students every semester in class, get the chip off your shoulder about being a West Virginian. It's the best thing that will ever happen to you. Never hurt me. Always help me. People were always curious. They never said, oh, no. They always said, you're so lucky. How can you do that? And I think what I've seen in the last 20 years, with the exception of strip mining, which is this big bugaboo that we can't quite get control of, we've evolved quite well. Uh, I like where we're going. And it's, it's a pain that languages become extinct and that there weren't recording devices around to record this, but now there are. There's a reason why languages become extinct. It's part of evolution. They're not necessary anymore. And now we have the biggest library recording device in the world, the internet. So we can always come back to it. I, I feel very positive about it. And I, and I think there are, I agree, a lot of different voices here. But there's a central goodness that we all spend our careers trying to define about us and we can't quite do it. You know, it's just a, it's just a thing, thing you know, so. Is it, uh, can I just ask, is it a kind of uh, certainty of being grounded? Is that part of what that is? It's, to, me, to me it is. It's part, you know, I work around the world, but I'm always back here. I'm kind of comfortable. You told the story about the famous writer who didn't want to go to Princeton and his excuse was, I don't have the right clothes. I love the outside world, but I'm always an outsider there. Here I'm home. I can play in that game, but, uh, but you know, this is, this is where we where we end up. One block away from each other at the same school. Yeah, I was going for 22 years and assumed I'd never come back. But um, I first came back and built a little cabin and thought that would be my retreat. And then I stayed longer and longer and longer, and then I finally moved into it. <laughs> Okay, yes, um, I think it's evolving, uh, and as the previous uh, speakers have said, I think it's through the internet. Uh, I belong to uh, two poetry groups in Appalachia, uh, and even though West Virginia is the only state that's completely in Appalachia, it's not Appalachia. So like this is West Virginia Rights Conference. So when, when we say Appalachia, there's a difference between the West Virginia Rights Conference and Appalachia. Yeah. But I do belong to, uh, I belong to a writing group in Tennessee called West, uh, the Griot Collective West from Tennessee. And I belong to a writing group in Kentucky called Appalachian Poets. And of course I belong to us here today. So uh, I think through the internet, uh, literature has evolved. Uh, for instance, uh, both of the groups I belong to, they do, uh, exercise on the internet. Uh, the last uh, exercise we did was uh, uh, the leader, the facilitator, sent out four words and said create a poem with these four words. And all of the writers had to create, all the poets had to create a poem with these four words. And then they posted them on the uh, internet. They uh, were uh, called the ingredients. And then they had what they called the big reveal and this was after everybody had, <laughs> had their poems. 
So uh, through this, I think uh, we're becoming more connected and evolving more and, uh, and creating better work spot. So I think it's definitely evolving. Um, well, I, I think it begs the question, what, like, like uh, Denise and I were saying, what is I noticed, Captain, when you introduced it, you said at one time the Appalachian Voice, and the next time you said the Appalachian Voice. And there's a big difference, I think, you haven't figured that out. Um, if you're talking about artifacts of culture, and language as an artifact of culture, like Michael Danny said, then, yeah, you could probably make a case that we're losing some of that. I, I deal a lot, and I know a lot, of, of old-time musicians. And because we didn't have those recording devices until you know, the 30s and the 20s and the 30s when they started recording, that what that thread of, of language as artifact, music as artifact, the way of talking, the way of, of thinking, of singing, and expressing yourself. If, if that's what you call an Appalachian voice, then, then yeah, that's necessarily going away because we all evolve. The, the, the evolution is inevitable. Some of the thoughts, you may know. But um, a Appalachian voice, no, it, it's still here very strong. I mean, those things. That, does an Egyptian writer think he's less of an Egyptian writer because he doesn't use hieroglyphics now? <laughs> no. Uh, it, it's still here. It, it's become what it necessarily has had to become. And, and that voice is still strong and, and, uh, and very, very. Uh, real in, in Appalachian writing. If, if any of you read a, a novel called The Ballad of Trenchmount Tiger? I can't imagine that being written by anybody that wasn't from West Virginia that didn't know Appalachian. I think that's a, that's a very strong book. I think it's still here. It, it's still very strong. You just have to understand that it's part of what Jesse Stewart called that thread that runs so true in that we, we take what we can from what we've been given and then use it and pass it on in the way we know how. And and in that in that vein I think, yeah, it's a strong Appalachian voice. The fact that we're sitting here talking about it means that we think that we might be losing something. We need to understand that we're gaining a lot. I tend to think that there's a difference between Appalachia and West Virginia in a, in a very subtle kind of way. And I think that's because this is such a crossroads of America kind of place. You know, so many things that we associate with American history go through here. They might not have started here, and they probably didn't end here, but they went through here. And of course, you know, we are the state that has a truly unique relationship with the American Civil War. And so that, you know, when, when people will say to me, you know, well, which side were you on? I'm like, it kind of depended on the day and which family it was. So, you know, it's it's a way of, of being able to be two things at once. And, and for, for me as a, as a writer, that to me is what a West Virginia voice is. We are oftentimes the bridge between point A and point B. And 
about, so that to me is what a West Virginia voice is. Um, that's just my opinion, but um, we, we're translators as much as we are storytellers. I mean, storytelling is a kind of translation <coughs> to me. So that's, that's my highfalutin answer to the question. Um, as to where it's going, one of the things that I think is really interesting is when I started writing about West Virginia 20 years ago, I would come across articles telling me that the great golden era of Appalachian literature was done. <laughs> I'm here, you know, and I'm now old, and I've been cultivating relationships with very young writers coming up. And so when I hear that, well, is it gone, is it going, is it dying, is it fading, the answer to me is an instinctual hell no, we're still here. And what I do think is, is you know, the, the details of what took place in my mother's life growing up in West Virginia, and what took place in my life, and what are taking place in the, the young people who are coming up today change, but the young people still deal with questions that not all young people deal with. I have a 14 year old son growing up in Northern Virginia. He doesn't go around asking himself, should I stay or should I go? That is not a question in his world. For one thing, he doesn't need to make that decision. His family isn't going to ask it of him or demand it of him. He doesn't need to ask himself, who am I as an individual within a collective world? Nobody ever asks my son, where are you from? And these are all things that these remain some of the core things about young people today that they wrestle with, just as we have always done. And I think because of that, we still have a long way to go before I'm declaring it's dead on arrival. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, as a sort of, a, I guess, unofficial carpetbagger of this panel, <laughs> I'm going to keep it to a minimum of both sides of my family go back to the and back, so I'll push it there. But anyway, I really just, I, I wouldn't presume to add too much to what's already been said, but I want to kind of agree with uh, Irene and Denise and Kurt and others that I, really what I'm interested in is the premise of the question, uh, the idea of a true Appalachian voice. Uh, first of all, as has been shown here, uh, clearly it's evolved. Uh, we are here. Uh, you know, we, we're not dead. But I think it, that's it's that issue at the core of the question that interests me is that there could be something that we would call a true Appalachian voice. That implies that there's some sort of a fixed essential quality. And I think of what Kirk is about the idea of artifact. And an artifact is a fixed thing. And what I'm thinking, I'm imagining is a museum diorama in which you've got, you see the natural history museums Little, little families set up around like the campfire, maybe Eskimos, and then somebody's throwing a spear at a, a wall or some things such as this. And this is being, but the point is it's being presented to us as this is the official, the authentic, the true thing. And everything else is somehow has drifted away from that uh, in some fashion. And I would argue uh, along the lines of evolution that it's always been evolving, that it's always been something dynamic. Uh, otherwise, we would simply be <coughs> imitators, uh, simply sort of duplicating, you know, banjo tunes to, to play the, the old-time music uh, metaphor. That it's something that always has been uh, involved, and we're, you know, I shouldn't say we, I am part of that. But 
but that um, something that has always been developing has always been in a condition of developing. That's what art comes from. Art doesn't come from something that's fixed, that has a, a single creed, uh, if you will, that you then adhere to, but rather something that's um, dynamic in condition. And that's simply what I would add to what others have already said. I didn't want to take it too into too much detail. We're as far far away as I could think was Alaska, so I'm going to That question uh, or the answers that you uh, provided to that question has brought up a number of elements uh, about um, uh, Appalachian, Appalachian voice, A, Appalachian voice, and Appalachian voice, and B, Appalachian voice. Uh, When you think about the literature that comes from this region, West Virginia, or in Appalachia, maybe do you ever say to yourself, this voice isn't honest? Is the literature to you not honest in coming from this region? So if that's the case, then there must be something you know instinctively. And so what is that? I've heard some things about some literature coming out of this area and say, no, that's not from here. So if you could respond to that, please. This is a terrific question because um, are you all familiar with the name J.T. Leroy? This was supposed to be uh, a precocious young uh, West Virginia boy whose mother was a prostitute and a drug addict dragging all across the country. He wrote these wonderful uh, novels about being sexually abused and Selling body truck stops, etc., etc. Uh, when I first read that book, I said, "This is not West Virginia. This is a lie." And I'll tell you how I know, because there was no acknowledgement of the physical surrounding and nature. Here, this kid was supposed to be out in the woods someplace, passing through various regions in West Virginia. Didn't notice a damn thing ever. <laughs> Never pointed out the thing in nature. And the tone of that work was so obviously geared toward what the popular mind expects out of depraved hillbillies that you knew it was somebody really, you know, turning a crank there. And it turned out to be the case. Yeah, I also had the same reaction to that. It wasn't just the natural, so I'm reading this This is supposed to be like we have all these prostitution rings running out of truck stops and everything. We're in the same place. I mean, I wasn't worth the neighbors. Anyway, um, 
But, you know, as far as my real voices, I don't think you can pin it down. Um, I was sitting here thinking, the two, two of the writers that I know the best, two novels that I know the best, uh, are um, Jane Ann Phillips and Silas Hatz. And Jane Ann is, I'm 58, she's probably my age or maybe a year or two older. And Silas is a companion, he's worked from Eastern Kentucky, a wonderful writer. Um, um, he's not quite turned 40 yet, I don't think so. He's technically still a boy.
things that we've, we've almost got telephone going here. But first of all, an aside, I wanted to mention to Daniel, he's talking about his professional wrestling. Everybody chuckles. I'm sorry, that is our classical drama. That is our kabuki. All right? Uh, it is. It is what embodies our American values, not Appalachian. But I want to just quickly go back to what I really started. You know, when you encounter that thing in fictional poetry or anywhere, it's dishonest. And this is an admittedly vague usage of the term, but like it, you smell it. You know it. And I think the first thing is when it steps away from the landscape. The landscape is no longer a character, no longer something that dynamically impacts action, whether it's having grown up in the holler or simply having to negotiate uh, I-77 north through those damned ravines coming into <laughs> Charleston. Okay, but it's, it's action and thought and human emotion are shaped by landscape. But the main thing I wanted to add to, to go connect with what I had mentioned before is that what you, you mentioned, hillbilly diorama. Well, that's when those kinds of stories begin to stink and, and smell. It's because they're not about human stories. They're tapping into just the things that I was talking about, these fixed sets of qualities, these essentialized uh, terms of identity that are not who people are. Uh, but again, that thing behind glass in the museum, the set of stereotypes uh, that are being deployed. But where I'm not as optimistic, and maybe this is the carpet bag speaking, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried. Uh, and I, I'm not arguing at all that it needs to be to take a defensive pose. I think I'm completely right about that. But I think it's also perhaps wrong to, to not think that there are people out there uh, unaware, whether it's this sort of phony uh, truck stop story that you mentioned or it's Cletus on The Simpsons. Uh, but the point is, I still do encounter it. I teach in southwestern Virginia. Uh, school where many of you may know Grace Tony Edwards and her Appalachian Studies program there is you know, really decidedly fine work that's been done. But I still, where I see it is when I see the young student come into a classroom and see them fighting with their Appalachian accent, trying to squash it, hold it back, uh, embarrassed by it. Radford University, where I teach, actually offered classes in elocution to get rid of just that accent. It's been a while. Uh, Grace Edwards would kill anybody who tried to suggest that now. But the point is, though, that it is still there. Uh, people pulling back uh, in some ways. And so some of those things that you know, I'm laughing about being behind glass in a museum diorama, some of them are still unleashed as a story, as a narrative of sorts. And I think we at least need to be aware of that, of being out there and not let those kind of stuff stop voices to take over. But don't start. Uh, I, I just wanted to add one thing. Um, thinking about uh, the whole question of truth, James Hill, uh, the wonderful Kentucky writer, was a kindred hermit in many ways, but somebody said something to him in an interview about you're an Appalachian writer, and he kind of stopped them. And he said, Appalachia is a myth. And of course it is. It's a good one. But of course it is a myth, and every single ethnic group or regional group in this country or any other country creates a myth for themselves. And it's not a matter of being absolute truth. It's something that you develop and you evolve based on certain kinds of values. And I think that holding that in mind is very important when you're 
uh, evaluating work from the region and, and watching the evolution of it so that you don't try to hold it back to something that you think is quote the truth. That is, you don't try to preserve it in some kind of condition that you think is timeless truth. Because when that happens, it does become museum quality. But we're telling ourselves a myth, and it's a myth I admire. <laughs> but it is a story, and it's based on certain values. And those uh, we tend to hold in common, I think. And let's keep in mind that in West Virginia, the word story is synonymous with lie. We don't like to call people liars, so we'll say you're telling a story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have uh, just a couple more questions. We'll do this, and then, then we're going to open it up to questions. We've been talking about touching on stereotypes. We're all very familiar with those and that sort of thing. But in thinking about the voice that comes from this region, what do you think or what are you seeing that you feel is cliche? That's a good question because, uh, you know, the idea of putting any writer on the line and saying they're writing in cliche. But I do think that there are two things. Jim Wayne Miller, who was a wonderful writer and a wonderful speaker, about Appalachia. Um, I heard him speak at the Heinemann, and he said that the thing that we don't want to talk about in America is class. He said, we can talk about anything else. We can talk about incest and child abuse and everything else you can think of. We get up in public and talk about it, but we don't talk about this glaring, absolute reality of being class. And when you're talking about class, you're talking about money, and you're talking about poverty. The second thing is gender. Those two things, class and gender. And I think they're pivotal uh, because they're relevant to this moment that we live in, in Appalachia, and they're potentially relevant all over the country. And there are a lot of writers I admire Jane um, Phillips, I think, writes very well about class. Many of the characters in her novel, uh, the mother figures aspire to be upper class. They're always trying to say, oh, you know, you want to do it like the trashy people do, and so on and so forth. Uh, and gender is certainly very, very important in Jane's work. Uh, class in Anne Pancake's uh, work is a key element. Uh, and also money, poverty, which is part of class distinction, is being part of her last novel, Strangers and Sweaters Then. Which, by the way, is a novel I admire to the heavens. Because she is willing to give her talent to something that she knows is absolutely crucial for all of us right now. We're not talking removal. And she does this in an artistic and beautiful way. So it never changing. Characters are all, always foremost, believable, wonderful, engaging characters, strong story, real sense of place. So that's kind of 
kind of work I'm admiring. And that's work that I feel is genuine and deals with things that are that could be stereotypical, but in a way that gives them, as Gretchen said in her uh, workshop, the dignity. That gives them dignity.
together, we battle for cliche and we, we, we point those kinds of things out. But now to go back to, the, I, there's no criticism I have in this Like a performance last night, there was nothing cliche about everyone had a rich ending that was not cliche. Uh, so I really don't know how to address it, but I do want to say, you know, we're trying to find the voice or a voice. And I work, I work around the world. When I want to take one product to represent my state, uh, I take The Unquieter. It's the one book that I take to different places. This is the closest thing as I can to tell you the story of so I'm glad you want that book up. Maybe it's sold you a few more copies. <laughs> okay. You know, really, that, that they always say, you know, there's nothing new in the sooner. It's hard to get stay away from cliche. Um, recently, I was uh, hired by the Department of the Interior to work with the National Park Service to create an outline in the history of the area that's now called the New River National National River well, New River National River. And anyway, uh, what we did was we uh, uh, gathered up a lot of the people who had lived in that area when it was just a coal mine area. Around Nutterberg and uh, uh, K. Moore and, and the New River Boy in that area. And uh, we interviewed about 23 people, took them back to the sites and had them talk to us and say, Yeah, I used to live right here, nothing that but bushes and gravel. Now. And uh, we interviewed 23 people and then we put together a narrative uh, of seven chapters. And they asked me to get a poem, they asked me to write a poem. This book is going to be published later this summer. It was a group from California who is now published in But they asked me to write a poem for each one of the chapters. And uh, I started off by writing a poem about the New York Gorge of the river that ran through. And I wrote one about the coal mines. I wrote one about picking blackberries. one about uh, canning. But anyway, uh, uh, through, through the voices of these people who lived there, these poems came very easy because I, I basically uh, wrote poems that identified with their stories. And they're people, they say they're going to publish all the poems in the book. So uh, there, there are ways around cliches, and that's going through the actual stories. And if they are T-shaped, they're just T-shaped. You know, T-shaped work sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, you have to remember, cliches became cliches because they have power. I mean, so, so you have to acknowledge that. You have to be really careful. I'm, I'm like Denise. I struggle with it all the time. Because, they, you know, they, they do have power. Uh, and you, you have to, it's very hard to, to stay out of that dilemma. Uh, I think uh, when, you, when you're talking about cliché stereotypes, I like I kind of like the way Lee Maynard has it. He just gets them all out of the way real early. <laughs> 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 all right, you're going to have your, your drunken moonshiner uncle in, in the hayloft with his niece's daughter and, and, just, and get, just get it done and then go tell the story. Um, so there's, there's a couple ways to do it. I, when, when Irene was talking about class, I, it, uh, I thought of Harriet Arnott, who wrote The Dollmaker, and, and 
Hunter's Horn, who had a very hard time getting those books published, and they're incredible books, a very good book. She had a very hard time getting those published because she was writing about the lower class in, in Kentucky, and, and she argued with publishers about, about that. Just a great line in, in the Hunter's Horn book, where uh, the guy, all of her, all her women characters are very strong, all her men characters are just pieces of crap. And, and but, so this guy's going to go out and, and start moonshine because he needs to make money, and then he spends all his money on, on hunting dogs. She's like, what are you doing? But, but the kids in, in the, the family, they, they're feeding the dogs and they're, they're feeding the chicken bones. So he won't let his uh, pedigree beagles, you know, his, his hunting dogs eat chicken bones. <laughs> but but she has this great line which said they go out and feed the chicken bones to the other dogs and, and they ask mama said can we, can we feed them this and, and mama says yeah so them dogs ain't got no pedigree they can eat chicken bones <laughs> and I think that's the metaphor for the class system that spread that runs through that whole book it, it's brilliantly done it's, it's really good so I, I agree they're, they're, they're really tough to, to get around it's, it's a tough question the question of class is very, very significant in my mind at all times. I think because I have been most of my adult life and will be most of my adult life for the foreseeable future living outside of Washington, D.C. And I know every single day the difference between what's going on there and what I'm hearing from the rest of the country. And there's such a huge disconnect that this is something that I, I live with as a, as a human being and feel responsible for every single day. And when I went, it, you know, we were so flippant in some ways about the, the kids growing up today, you know, because I think that all generations are kind of flippant about the generations that come after us, but I'm just getting to be old enough where I can be flippant, you know, and and I, I, you know, we all talk about how they're all on the internet, they're all on Facebook, and they all have this stuff, and, you know, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them here in West Virginia have no internet access whatsoever. They do not have the computers in their homes. You know, um, my home has, at last count, three computers. We have two iPhones and an iPad. And there are three people in my house. Okay? <laughs> Our work's next, sorry. But, you know, these, these kids coming up are going to have to compete with kids coming out of, even dumb kids who are coming out of circumstances that have made them into something. And, you know, and, and West Virginia produces some of the very best and the very brightest. But it also is a truly testing ground. And a lot of people fall through the cracks. And that is something that I, I try to remember myself every day, that there are still people coming up through this world. And, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a friend on Facebook. I'm just going to story real quick. So I can't talk without telling the story. But I had a friend on Facebook that I had known from Philippines. And I hadn't talked to her since I was six. But, you know, so I, you know, I 
connected with her and she she wrote back to me and she said, oh, I am so excited that we're back in touch with you. And she said, you have no idea how important your family was to me. Really? What do we do? She said, well, you know, you were these, you know, my, my father was a librarian, my mother was a teacher. She said, you were these educated people. And yet, you just, you just loved my family the way you would love anyone. And I wrote back, I was, I was floored by this. I wrote back and I said, see, <laughs> when we went to your house, you guys were the coolest people alive. You had to go, and we got to ride horses, and, <laughs> you know, and it was just one of those moments where it reminds me once again that, you know, it really depends on where you are. And I, they were, Every memory, I told us, every memory I have of being in your family is a happy memory. And how often can you say that about people in your lives? So I, I think that class really is the third rail of, of life, and at least American life. And anybody who wants to talk about that, that's on the scene. I'll be very brief. I think we don't talk about class enough because it forces us as a large group, not us, but as a nation to um, look at the potential lie of meritocracy and believe that everybody, if you just work hard enough, you will be able to get ahead. And it's a that's a big old hot steamy pile. Okay, and we won't get past that until we talk about the fact that the deck is stacked in many, many ways. And uh, very quickly, uh, we, something about cliches started here. Uh, just, this is a lot of writing workshops. Uh, you can't get away from it. They have strength because they were out there for a reason. Look at it this way. If, you're, if you can take that cliche and it becomes interchangeable in any character's mouth, get rid of it and find something else. Uh, if anybody can use it. That's all. I think now in the interest of time that uh, we'd like to open this up uh, for questions from the audience. Here's your opportunity. Well, um, many of you know at this point that uh, I grew up in the inner city of Charleston, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and I. Uh, and I actually, I went to inner city schools, and most of my friends were black. <laughs> and, um, and my sister married a black guy, and my aunt was black. Um, and anyway, so I left. I mean, they had to make that choice you're talking about. Should I stay or should I go? Well, for me, there was nothing to stay for because things were just going to hell in a handbasket. It was, it was the early 70s. There were no jobs. My dad was out of work. My mother was bipolar. The stress was getting to her. I mean, I had to leave. And so... I just made it my business to make straight A's, low away standardized tests, and get the hell out of there. So I did. I went and put myself in college in Ohio. And in order to do that, I had to cut down my accent, which I still deplore that I had to do that. You know they teach code switching now in the schools in Southeast Ohio. And that's a really good idea because it teaches you to, to be aware of the context and how to act in the outer world in that context. But that's an aside. So I, I'm a poet now, at least now and then. And I'm struggling with these issues about language and how do I, I mean, there's all this context that goes, but there's nothing in the language that happens without context. It, it happens with landscape, it happens with family, it happens with church. I mean, 
If I tell you somebody's trailer went down the hill in January rain, you know immediately I'm talking about climate change. If I tell somebody in the Pacific Northwest that, they have no notion. I mean, I wrote this poem about Bill Weathers and what an inspiration he was because he got out and when we heard him singing soul music, we, we could hear that voice and we knew he had to be from where we were from and we got so excited. And that, I, I, I can try to transmit that, but when I wrote that poem, it came out in what you're not supposed to do, which is write in somebody else's dialect, but hell, I spoke that dialect when I was a kid. And I, I mean, what the black kids spoke. And so I'm, I'm dealing with these issues around language. I'm dealing with these issues around Appalachian languages really. And around the context, after my mother died, I, I wrote a poem that, you know, if I gave it to Wilma Acre, she'd take a look at it, she might say, this is crap, or I don't know, but she'd say immediately, this is about death. But if I, if I give it to somebody in my writer's group in Seattle, they have no idea. Maybe some of the subliminal image is going to work on them, but all that old-fashioned imagery, if I, if I reference a cedar tree or something like that, that's just not, it goes right over their heads. So I am trying to write in a way that works on all the levels and gets across. I mean, now I'm working on a memoir, and I'm, I'm coming up against the same issue. So I'm really, I, I just was so keen to come to this panel. So my question really is, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, how do you be true and authentic and write in a way that somebody that you grew up with would get it immediately without selling out and still write in a way that's accessible to people from outside Appalachia? <laughs> Keep the characters honorable. Nothing else. Keep them honorable. Your protagonist is honorable. Your antagonist is dishonorable. They talk how they talk. My fault. So far, they're talking the way they want to talk. Tell me your disturbance, don't you? You know, so you only have to get down to the hard part, which is just sitting there. <laughs> There's so many things we can overthink. We can't figure out the universe. I mean, we have all those, you know, questions about um, how am I going to use language when I start writing this poem? Because if you do that, you're just going to freeze up your self-consciousness. Um, if you kind of, I was talking with somebody a while ago about what lyric poetry does that nothing else in the world can do. And that thing is, it's one human being, just a regular human being, standing up, speaking at the center of their life. So you don't have to be a, some kind of expert or, or know everything or have a huge, profound philosophical viewpoint or have figured out everything about crap. You, you just have to hang on to that one idea that your perceptions of the world are extremely valuable and authentic and you speak out of that. I, I, um, I think it really does have to be authentic and because uh, it, if it's not, it's not going to, yeah, it's not going to bring truth. And if people don't know what you're talking about in certain contexts, you know, uh, first of all, you can contextualize things. You'd be surprised what you do in the context of your writing so that you can make it clear what you're talking about, even if the person's not familiar with that yeah, I like to read older writers. I like to read a lot of British fiction, you know, 19th century British fiction. And I don't always know what they're talking about. So there's such a thing as a dictionary and the internet and encyclopedia. You know, I look it up. And, and if somebody doesn't know, you know, what, uh, you know, it's on my terms, if they don't know what low bridges are, look it up. You know, I'm sure you can find it in that somewhere. It's not a pain. 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 It's not a pain
uh, that's part of the product. Today is you can hear something in, a, in your fiction or culture or whatever, that you don't know what it is to find out what it is. I mean, that's part of the joy. So, you know, if someone wants to be a lazy reader, that's their problem. Certain poets, like I read a lot of Irish poets, and they make references to things that I don't know anything about. It does not bother me in the least uh, to run across words that I'm unfamiliar with. If the poem is good otherwise, if the poem says to me, yes, I'm speaking authentically out of the center of my life, then whatever they do is just fine with me as a reader. And I think that's the way most readers feel. If you can trust the voice, the rest of it is irrelevant. There's another, I think, can I add one other thing with that, just on a more practical level, is that, yeah, we have to be aware of an audience in the sense that you, by no means, do you want to you know, exclude an audience. And we all know when we've read somebody who is demonstrating their own particular skills and insights and their particular little <coughs> that they've created for its own sake. So you don't want to do that. But at the same time, absolutely, you can make some expectations of your reader. You don't want them sitting there like a lump, uh, having it all done for them. You, you, can, you don't have to spell everything out. You can make some demands. Personally, I think that that's a more fulfilling reading experience, like what Denise was saying. Plus, you know, if you spell everything out, make sure that everything's clear, it's kind of saying to the reader, you're kind of stupid, so I'm going to do it all for you, and you don't want to do that either. So you, you can, again, there's a balance act, but I think you can absolutely make some expectations of your reader. I just want to add that I'm almost as squeamish about the word authentic as I am the word truth. <laughs> Um, this is probably because a very well-known Appalachian writer said to me before I had published anything, it, you know, anything like that, and I said I was writing about Appalachia, he, he, he knew me, and he goes, yeah, but you didn't grow up there. And it's true. I didn't technically grow up in West Virginia. He said, what? And what did he mean about it? He wasn't trying to say that, you know, he was just questioning me and by God, don't question me. Just don't don't go down that road. You know, so that that's one thing. If somebody is always, it's an easy thing for somebody to tell, to tell you you're not authentic. It's a cheap shot. And don't let it get under your skin. Because who the hell is that? Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say is something that I talk about because I'm a writer and I tell you about writers, you know, they're, they're, I, I'm not going to say a word about poetry because I can't. But if you're talking about like a memoir or you're talking about a novel, you know, there are lots of different voices in a novel. There's a voice of a character, there's the voice of the novel itself, and even if you were telling a novel in first person, in midwife, it's told in total first person. However, the, 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 the voice of the novel is not the same as Elizabeth's voice. And then there's also the voice of the author. And that, to me, is what I'm trying to keep out of my work. You know, because when I'm letting the voice of the character, however that comes out, in whatever form it comes out, it comes out. And then there is the voice of the of maybe the narrator, if you want to think of it that way, which is different than the character. And then you have the voice of the novel itself. And if you can get those three to a position 
You know, you, you've got to, if you think of it, instead of trying to capture the voice, think of it as capturing different voices. And sometimes that gives me some, some breathing room as a writer. I'd like to add that, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Look around. Be <laughs> told I can't do something. <laughs> what I was going to say uh, is, uh, especially for me, right? It's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's hard work, uh, and and I'm not a person that, you know, I was certain time to do this, certain time to do. This. But I always uh, set aside a certain part of the, of the day or week to write. And, and, and before you can write, you have to read. And before you read, you have to live. And, 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 and it's, it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy. Right? right? I think too many people think, you know, they write a poem and say, oh, I'm a poet. You know, which they are for that particular poem. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but it takes I think it takes hard work, dedication, and uh, and uh, stick to it. I've been writing for fifty years now, over fifty years. Now. I still have find it difficult sometimes to write poems, like the poems I told you about that I, I wrote for that particular project. You know, um, even though I have an idea, I said, okay, I'm gonna write this poem's gonna be on the coke of It's about industrial, you know, becoming industrial in the Pinoy Valley. Um, and I did research, I said, it goes back to the Cocos. They were the first ones to uh, 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 produce sort of a chemical. And uh, and then you had DuPont. They took it on from there and Hawksbury. And you have to do a lot of research, you know. Uh, sometimes a poem would just come to you, you know, and you're right. But, to be a, I think, a professional poet, if there is such a thing, <laughs> you have to work. You have to work at it. It doesn't come easy. I agree with that. The question about inspiration, I haven't been inspired since 1976, I guess. <laughs> but I kept writing because um, my real inspiration was that I just wanted to keep writing. That's, I mean, that's kind of redundant and circular, but it's just the desire to do it that nothing in particular inspires me. Um, so I give myself assignments and uh, try to be my own teacher and my own workshop leader and, and read, read a great, great deal. Yeah, one more question. Uh, you mentioned class and gender several times. In the previous session, do you see truth and uh, well, truth evolving in terms of examples of that in Appalachian literature? Do you see examples of truth evolving in Appalachian literature related to race? And I know that many ways you you've addressed class and gender in terms of Appalachian literature several times. But the 
I was the judge for the Appalachian uh, competition for writing this year, and I was extremely pleased to see stories from Asia, stories from African Americans, stories from Hispanic points of view. Now they all were, they were all, they had a tie to West Virginia, and they had ties to it, but it was not, I, I love a good Scott-Irish story as much as anybody, but there are, there are a lot of other voices here. Again, we have had a lot of people who have come through here. And um, when I grew up in Philippi, one of my best friends was a, a, fam a family who was from India. And we're all still friends today. And, um, you know, like you, I, I went to a, a school that was very much African-American. <coughs> You know, so I do, I am really glad to be able to say to you today that the, there were writers that you're in this room who were expanding that definition of Appalachian and the rest of the world in race. There's a movement too uh, um, called the Appalachian Poets Movement, which uh, you should know about, but uh, mostly in Kentucky, although uh, some, also some Western folks are involved in using that specific term Appalachian. You know, to say it's more than just you know, Scotch Irish. Uh, you know, I get that myself in my last name. People will say, you know, how do you happen to be in West Virginia have that last name? There are a ton of that things in you know, West Virginia. There are a ton of African Americans in West Virginia. There are a ton of Hungarian Americans in West Virginia. Right? I mean, if you look at, at, at last names in Black County, I think this one's a and start out with a hundred different ethnic groups and stop there. <laughs> there are even Chinese people in the name of So, you know, that, that whole notion, uh, and I certainly think um, that the African-American experience here is the key. I mean, when you look at the labor movement and the involvement of African-Americans in the labor movement, absolutely crucial. When you look at um, uh, African-American African elected officials in that county in the 1920s, uh, and if you look at uh, the fact that McDowell County is called the free state of McDowell because because of the lack of segregation, that sort of thing. And I think you know, that, and that's, I think that is something we're much more aware of than we should do. Well, I, I think uh, I, I think it's been a great progress. Uh, when Barbara and I were editing Wall Street Notes, we we tried very hard to get a representative sample of, of all the voices we could think of. We got more voices than we thought we could pick up, and, and I, I think that, that that's helped. My wife, before she retired, taught English as a second language to kindergartners, to preschoolers in Morgantown. And when she got the job, I was like, is there that much of a need in Morgantown for English as a second language? And, and what I found out was there are 58 different languages spoken in Morgantown. <laughs> 58 different languages, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. So I, I think it's, I think it's good for that. I think it's But specifically, uh, if the question was directed, like, is race being dealt with in Appalachian fiction? I have to say no. I don't see it. Ladies and gentlemen, wonderful questions, and we'd love to be able to take more, but we want you to have time to chill just a little bit before you attend the banquet and find out which one of you knows and why.
Martin Money Prizes. And Anisha uh, Khan is going to be our keynote speaker tonight. Uh, so we want to let you know so you can get ready for that. But please, everyone, give a round of applause for Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County.